Now it's time to talk about the refugee caravan crossing Mexico. Trump may have stopped talking about it now that the election is over and he can't use those refugees to spread fear among Republican voters, but we're still interested in why the caravan is so big and what we need to do about it. For that, we turn to Laura Carlson. She's a contributor to The Nation and to Democracy Now! and director of the Americas program of the Center for International Policy. She's based in Mexico City. She's been with the caravan for The Nation. We reached her today in Mexico City. Laura Carlson, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Thanks for the invitation. Well, the caravan of Central American migrants on Saturday set out on foot from Mexico City, where they'd spent a few days, and is walking toward Guadalajara and then up the Pacific coast to Tijuana. That's more than 1,500 miles. You talked to some of the refugees in that caravan. What did they tell you about why they are walking? The refugees are coming mostly from Honduras. And there, there's a, a combination of factors that have to do with the poverty, but mostly have to do with the violence and the political crisis there. The political crisis, the latest one, because we'll recall that in 2009, there was a military coup in Honduras that was never really restored to constitutional order. Uh, but the latest con- conflict there had to do with the elections just last November when the president, Juan Orlando Hernandez put himself up for re-election, something that's prohibited by the Constitution, and uh, then lost the election and was instated through fraud uh, by most all analysis that caused uh, widespread demonstrations throughout the country that have been repressed with scores of political assassinations. So we have a country that's basically a wreck between the poverty, the displacement caused by transnational investment and mega projects that are taking over lands where communities, especially indigenous communities, are located, and the political crisis that has targeted dissidents and created widespread chaos throughout the country. So I've talked to quite a few refugees, both out at the camp when they were here in Mexico City and uh, for interviews. Uh, and what they're talking about is really an imminent threat to their lives. Um, there was one person who is transgender, and she described the kinds of threats that she received on a daily basis as well as the overall chaos and violence that reigns in the country. And so when the caravan set off, she decided that this was a good opportunity to leave. There's also a number of individuals who've received direct death threats, both from Honduras and then we talked to several in in El Salvador as well, because later a large group left from El Salvador. So typically what happens is that someone refuses to pay an extortion uh, by the gangs in order to carry out their business, or there's a lot of young people on the caravan that have decided that, or that decided not to join a gang, and they were threatened that they either had to join or be killed. And so many of them took the opportunity to leave. These are the kinds of cases that we're seeing. The United Nations, a uh, number of years ago, 
did interviews on the southern border with Mexico and found that some half of the cases, just on the face of it, had legitimate claims for refugee status, and the number is probably far higher now. Uh, Who organized this particular caravan? Of course, we're told it was George Soros who did it. This has been the big question because there was a lot of rumors going around about how this caravan came out. Of course, it's it's a common occurrence that caravans and individuals leave from Honduras to go to the United States these conditions that I've just described. But in this case, what's not common is that it was such a large group. There were like 7,000 people. Uh, and so we talked to a number of people in Honduras and tried to figure out, okay, so how do we explain this? Uh, clearly, it had nothing to do with George Soros. In fact, there was, was a video of people receiving uh, money, and it turned wasn't even taken in Honduras, had nothing to do with the caravan. It was taken in Guatemala, and they were small amounts that sometimes people give them to, to continue their trips. So that's been discarded. Then there's also been a lot of speculation about whether the right didn't provoke this mass exodus in order to do exactly what happened later, which is create uh, this invasion scenario that would mobilize the Trump base for the midterm elections. But in the end, the conclusion that we arrived at was that the caravan became so large because of a pent-up demand of individuals who were looking to leave, who had to leave Honduras, and then, and then a little bit later, El Salvador in particular. Uh, and when they found out that there was a group forming that would uh, travel in large numbers, uh, and would be able to do so without having to pay what they call coyotes, which are the human traffickers, and that charge between eight and fifteen thousand dollars to make the trip. Uh, that this would be a good opportunity. When Trump talked about the caravan, he emphasized that it consisted of many young men. Um, you also talked with women and children. How prominent are they in this group, and what did they tell you about why they were there? We don't have an exact number of everyone on the caravan, but this is by far the largest number of women and children that we've seen on a caravan or an exodus of this kind. And the women are saying the same thing, that they were facing many of them. That One who I talked to at length, for example, said that her son um, in La Ceiba, which is the eastern part of, of Honduras, had been threatened by the gangs to join, had been beaten up brutally by the gangs. She tried to get him out of that city. She went to another city. She found almost the same situation there. And it was at that point that she decided to leave because it was, it was, it was almost a sure thing that he was going to get in trouble, if not be killed, if he didn't agree to join some of these gangs. Basically, the it breaks down into a number of stories that relate to three types of violence. State violence, because there are attacks on individuals, like the case of Berta Cáceres, that many people probably have heard of before, an indigenous land defender who was killed by members of the company whose um, hydroelectric project she was opposing, and by members of the Honduran army. The Honduran government since the coup in 2009 has been dedicated to opening the country up 
to transnational investment and to projects of this type that displace indigenous communities. And there have been more than her case. There have been a number of cases where they're willing to use violence in order to suppress indigenous resistance to being, to being evicted from their lands. So we have a number of cases that relate to state violence. We have the organized crime violence. And we also have patriarchal violence. There are women who are also leaving because they've been threatened, they've already been beaten by abusive spouses or partners. The problem there is very severe uh, because these women, since Jeff Sessions decided that neither gang violence nor, uh, nor domestic violence were any longer causes for for refugee status in the United States, the people are still leaving because their lives are in danger, but they're facing a much, much more difficult situation when they do and if they do get to the U.S. border. Do the people on the caravan that you talk to have any idea that Trump made them the central issue for the Republicans in the elections that week? Do they know that the Army has been, United States Army has been mobilized to, to, uh, uh, meet them at the border? They do, and people have been talking to them about that. There was a number of legal teams set up to talk about what what does the scenario for refugee status look like in the United States now. Uh, there's been a number of conversations along the route of the caravan to describe this extremely hazardous and difficult situation that they're facing. And they've always known that traveling through Mexico, too, presents a large number of, of, of very dangerous situations with organized crime and with corrupt police. But it's, it doesn't really factor into their decisions. Um, many of them have family in the United States, and they've left a place that they can't go back to, a place there where they couldn't stay, and they just keep hoping that something about their case or in some way they'll be able to finally rejoin their family in the United States. It's, um, I don't know, it's like it's a case of there's no place to go, so they have to believe in something. Uh, so you'll even still hear the phrase sometimes, American dream. I'm following the American dream, even though they are on another level aware that it's become an American nightmare. So what do we need to do about the caravan? It's very important that people in the United States understand that it's legal to cross a border and apply for asylum. International law has made a number, you know, there are a number of conventions that define the need for every state to accept asylum cases. So we're not talking about an invading army of illegal people. These are people who are following the rules in terms of what their rights are. And they have rights not only as refugees, they also have rights as human beings. There's a number of migrant rights that say that there's, there's freedom of mobility is a part of the way that our world is organized. And while states have a right to create border uh, policies and to so-called control their borders, uh, they also affect the fact that people have a right to, to live where they're safe, to keep their families together, to have their families together, to have 
children in a place that's safe and where they can be fed. And um, these, these are factors that are not even being discussed in the debate now in the United States. The individual stories are heartrending. It's completely understandable. There's a kind of a concept that these people leave just because they think they can get a piece of the American pie, basically. But that's not at all what it's about. If people had any real understanding of the kinds of situations that they're leaving. And then the other part that's really important is that there's been this just vicious language about who these people are. And I've come to know a number of them, and not just in this exodus that began in October, but in others as well, because migration out of these regions has been going on for a very long time. And uh, they're not criminals. You know, they're, they're not looking to steal jobs. They're not looking to cause trouble, and they say that over and over. Um, they're, they're really looking to just have a safe place where they can survive. It's very, very important that people in the United States understand this, to react with compassion. Then the other part of it is that this whole scare of a migrant crisis is completely unfounded in terms of the facts. In fact, apprehensions at the border, which is the measure that we generally use to to gauge the overall rates of people who are crossing, because obviously you don't catch anyone, but if they go up and down, you can see what the tendencies are. They're at their lowest levels since the 1970s. The United States is not being inundated by migrants from Mexico, Mexico is like at net zero, nor from Central America. These are numbers that can be easily integrated into society. They're people who know how to work and want to work, um, and they're people who are, are just looking you know, to, to, in many cases, to be with their family because they already have family members there, and for a safe place they, they can live. And one other thing, American policy towards Honduras could also have a big effect on migration from that country. That's absolutely true, and the effect is a direct one. Um, What happened in 2009, before the violence started at these levels in Honduras, was there's a military coup, and there was a huge process to negotiate the return of the elected president. Uh, And during that process, the U.S. government manipulated it so that they actually held elections under a coup regime. Instead of returning constitutional law and the elected president to office, they held elections under a coup regime, and since then there's been a series of governments that were very close to the coup regime that have been strongly supported by the U.S. government. In the recent elections, that even the Organization of American States could not endorse because it was so clear that there had been fraud involved in the fact that he went up for re-election in the first place, but also in the vote itself. The U.S. Embassy played a huge role in supporting Juan Orlando Hernandez uh, to keep office after that election, instead of listening to the protesters who are demanding a fair election. So we have the United States government supporting these repressive 
and illegitimate governments, particularly in Honduras, in Honduras, we're talking specifically now, that are expelling their people, their own people, because of the levels of violence, political violence, and criminal violence. Also, since the coup, the rise of organized crime in Honduras has been exponential. These conditions didn't exist to this day, to this degree before. So we're, there's a lot of responsibility for that. Another factor that has to be taken into account is that the United States has militarized societies. It's very clear in Mexico since 2006 when the war on drugs was launched with the support and later the financial aid, not the financial aid, but the, the foreign aid from the United States under the Merida Initiative and also in Central America under the what's called now Alliance for Prosperity and other programs to supposedly fight organized crime, but giving military power and police power to these repressive governments, as well as causing uh, conflicts and helping to repress local conflicts in defense of land. Laura Carlson, she wrote for The Nation about why the refugee caravan is so big and what we need to do about it. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Laura. Thanks very much, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.